This is Matt, and I wanted to give a little backstory before we get into this much-awaited episode, uh, at least for me. We had recorded with Dr. Forcia, I believe it was the end of September, and at that time learned that the ACC AHA guidelines on hypertension would be coming out. Now, we were talking with Dr. Forcia. She is one of the writers of the ACP 2017 Guidelines for the Pharmacologic Treatment of Hypertension in Adults Age 60 Years or Older. And so we talked to her about those guidelines and a bit about how to treat and how to approach hypertension in older adults and how guidelines are written. Then the ACC AHA released their guidelines before we could release this episode, which basically forced us to have an emergency recording session. So the first 50 minutes of this episode are what we had planned to record with Dr. Forcia. And the last 20 minutes of this episode are kind of going back to episode number two, where it was just me and Paul Williams having a discussion about the sprint trial. This is me and Paul Williams having a discussion about the 2017 ACC AHA guidelines. I think you're going to find this episode very timely and relevant to your clinical practice, and hopefully it will help you interpret guidelines because as a generalist, I feel that is a difficult thing when you have multiple societies telling you different things. And I think this episode came out really interesting because I think Dr. Forcia is somewhat of a precog to uh, reference Minority Report because she sort of predicted uh, that the guidelines would differ from the ACP guidelines. And the things that she talked about, I thought, were really illustrative of some of the differences between the ACC AHA guidelines and why those differences exist. You'll see what I'm talking about during the episode And I really hope you find this as interesting and as enjoyable as we did. So without further ado, we'll get to our normal and regularly scheduled program. Thank you. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew. Hello. Hello. This is the Internal Medicine Podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with several co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hi. Dr. Paul Williams. (laughs) Paul, they probably won't pick that up on mic. Oh, that's a shame. Hi, everybody. (laughs) That was the most perky... (laughs) I'm all dead inside. And Dr. Shreya <laughs> Paresh Trivedi. Hello, hello. Thanks, thanks everyone for coming on the show again. Um, and uh, let's you let's jump right into some picks of the week. Excellent. Paul, did you, did you want to start us off? Oh, I, I I legit forgot that we were doing this. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I saw two good movies this week. So I'll recommend uh, which one. I saw Blade Runner 2049. And if well, I'll give recommend a qualified recommendation, I think so. If you like good looking movies and you're a fan of the original, um, I think it's worth the watch. It's nearly three hours long. So if you're not a fan, 
and you're not a fan of cinematography and Roger Deakins, maybe give it a pass. Um, but it's it's a good looking film. The acting's great, and it's I think it pays um, appropriate homage to the original, which is of course uh, now considered a classic. So I'll recommend Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Excellent, wonderful. Unless okay. you don't want to see it. <laughs> Um, okay, so my pick of the week is, um, so I was just on the CCU uh, at Cashlack, just finished a 28-hour call, and um, I wanted to recommend this great app called, um, for, for when you're running codes or when you're involved in a code, called Full Code Pro. I think it's by the AMA, and basically it helps you keep time of CPR when Epi's given shocks and various rhythms you saw, um, and it also has like a, a metronome, so the people that are doing compressions have like a beat to compress you, so you know you're doing 100 to 120 beats per minute of compressions which really will hopefully save the patient but it was such a game changer for me because for when I was a med student and in the first two years of residency I was just someone would say hey um, can you uh, can you keep time I would just you know, pull out my phone and use the timer. Um, but now that like I've been using this and I've just had the streak of having people code at 5 a.m. I'm so tired of up for 24 hours. Um, and codes can be so chaotic that this app has helped running codes make it a little bit more smoother. So I'd highly recommend it. Recommend it for if you're involved in codes and it'll be a huge help, I think. Yeah. It sounds great. Stuart? That's... Okay. So mine is 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 medical for once. Um, I probably have done something medical in the past. I don't remember. Anyways, so my pick of the week is actually an NEJM uh, article that came out just this last month. It's the effects of once-weekly xenotide and cardiovascular outcomes in type 2 diabetes. I was very distraught and upset that, unfortunately, the data suggests that there is no statistically significant difference in outcomes for xenotide. But surprisingly, now, if you compare this to an article that came out last year, Leary-Glutide and cardiovascular outcomes in type 2 diabetes, this, on the other hand, is more promising. And it kind of made me scratch my head and say, well, do I need to look at changing my practice, all things being equal? Unfortunately, it's we're, we're kind of at the behest of the the formulary that we that we practice in. Now, certainly, if your formulary offers liraglutide as an option um, compared to xenotide, it's something to consider. Now, certainly, uh, patient compliance is something to consider as well. Once weekly versus a daily injection can be something that may persuade you to, to go with xenotide still. Okay. We just need to get this on our uh, hospital formularies. Right. Yeah. And I wanted to quickly give a book recommendation. It's a book called Practically Radical. The author is one of the one of the founders of the magazine Fast Company and it's a leadership book talks about uh, radical leadership principles and some of the great, there's just some great ideas in there. If you are running an organization or running a team, I would say anyone working on the wards is running a team or probably even if you're in clinic, you're running a team there. So I, I think it's really good to read these books and get ideas. And they, they also talk about the, the uh, risk of following conventional wisdom, which I think is something that is a big risk for doctors to do is to follow conventional wisdom rather than challenge things. So that is practically radical. And I'll put the link in the show notes. And now we should introduce the topic. Dr. Marianne Forcia, MD. She's a master of the American College of Physicians. She's a clinical professor of medicine in the Division of Geriatric Medicine at Penn Medicine. She received her MD degree from Duke University. Her internal medicine residency was at the University of Minnesota, and her geriatric fellowship was in Glasgow, Scotland. Her clinical practice is centered on the primary care on the primary care of 
the older patient in the office and also in the house call setting. She served as medical director at Penswood Village from 2000 to 2012. She's the director of the Medical Student and Internal Medicine Residency Elective in Geriatric Medicine. For eight years, she served on the Clinical Guidelines Committee of the American College of Physicians, and she was the chair of the Guidelines Writing Committee for Pharmacologic Treatment of Hypertension in Adults Age 60 Years or Older, to higher versus lower blood pressure targets, which is a long title, but that's what we'll be talking about today. Oh, bravo. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. So on this episode, as Shreya was saying, we get, in, we get into how to measure BP, how the, how the guidelines came about with their targets, how to kind of interpret guidelines when you're looking at them from the various societies. I think it's really useful. I learned a lot in this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Matt. Did you hear about the rose gardener that came to the doctor? No. She had a spike in her blood pressure. Ah! <laughs> uh, okay. I, that's yeah. not even a pun. What, <laughs> no, it's not. What is, I refuse to even acknowledge that as a joke. That's just okay. things you said. <laughs> <laughs> we put the pressure on Dr. Forsee. Oh. Jeez. I love it. And with us tonight is Dr. Marianne Forcia from both the ACP and the University of Pennsylvania. And tonight we're going to be calling her Marianne. Hi, Marianne. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Curbsiders. Hello. Yeah, we are excited to talk with you. You're, you're, you're quite accomplished, and, uh, and that is something that we can't say for ourselves. But we would, we would like to ask you just a little bit of, about yourself so the audience can get to know you. So can you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? So I've been in practice in geriatric medicine for about 35 years, all at the University of Pennsylvania in the Division of Geriatric Medicine. I'm married and I have two grown daughters, a veterinary surgeon and a neurology resident. Wow. That sounds like your daughters are doing well for themselves, too. <laughs> yes, mainly from my husband's uh, heredity there, I think. <laughs> Don't sell yourself short. I, I wanted to ask you kind of um, in reflection of being a trainee, I often reflect on how I am learning. You are an expert primary care geriatrician. I was wondering, what do you still do for your own learning? Kind of what are some habits and things you do consistently for to keep yourself up to date? So the certainly I attend our divisional conferences, our medical grand rounds. Those are on a weekly basis. I try to keep up with the New England Journal and the Annals and the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, which is fortunately monthly. Mm. Um, and then, of course, one of the great benefits of being around an academic center is there's lots of opportunities to not only go to talks, but to give talks, which is a great way to force yourself to review materials. <laughs> That's our whole trick with the show. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Stuart? Yeah. So one of the concerns that we have with physician burnout and um, just kind of washing out of the whole medical career is this idea of trying to have some margin between your personal and professional lives. What, what do you do in your personal life to give you that margin or to give you that, that sense of well-being? Uh, so I like to read um, mostly mysteries or science fiction, believe it or not. Um, and, of course, I spend quite a bit of time with my family cooking. Um, I'm sort of crafty, so I knit and I have a loom and do some weaving. Paul? 
<laughs> um, I, I'm going to make this question even easier and without preamble, but just what is the last book that you've read? <laughs> I used to ask the best book that you ever read or a book that everyone recommends, and people stress out so much over that question that I'm just now narrowing it down to just what's the last book that you made it all the way so through. There's a, a wonderful woman mystery writer named Louise Penny who writes about a, a small village in Canada, and her most recent book is called Glass Houses. So that's what I read most recently. Excellent. I, I, and I was going to say, in response to your previous answer, when Stuart was asking about wellness, is, I, I, I don't know if this is still up-to-date fact, but uh, the geriatricians are famously, they have the most job satisfaction in medicine, is, is what I've heard. Is that still true? So I, I believe we're still worst in pay and highest in satisfaction, <laughs> which is a, a great paradox. That's amazing. I've heard lots of people say, you know, we're too dumb to know that we're underpaid or et cetera, et cetera. But I personally think it's because you don't sort of happen into geriatrics. You you have to be pretty determined that that's what you want to do. Um, and secondly, almost all of our settings are team-based practice. So there's a lot of ability to diffuse tension and burnout um, and Almost all geriatricians practice in more than one setting, so there's a lot of variability in your clinical day or your clinical practice, which I think helps as well. A huge plug for geriatrics fellowship right there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, big fan. I'm, I'm a big fan of geriatrics. So. You asked. Yeah, thank you. No, I'm <laughs> glad I answer. did. <laughs> Well, let's let's start off. Let's get into the topic here. We we kind of have two things that we wanted to to get for the audience to get to the bottom of for the audience tonight. So one of them is a little bit about how ACP writes its guidelines and when when the audience as primary care is is reading the guidelines, how they should sort of think about them, how they were written. And then the other thing is just to talk about managing hypertension in older patients, uh, particularly in the geriatric population. And Shreya, did you want to start us off with a case? Yep. So recently at Cashlack, there was a 70-year-old male, history of hypertension, BPH, and severe osteoarthritis, uh, who presented to primary care for a follow-up. Um, he had reported routine compliance with his hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams, and amlodipine, 5 milligrams. Um, However, his blood pressure was 152 over 86. And then repeat blood pressure two weeks later was also similar. Uh, before getting into the granulars of the case, can you just walk us through kind of what makes geriatric patients more prone to these higher blood pressures? Uh, so that's an interesting question. Of course, that's still being uh, defined. I think that the dominant theory is still that there's a change in compliance in the artery, the arterial system as people age uh, change in elastic fiber and contractility and ability to retain tension in the walls of the arteries. But there's been so much change in this area during my practice lifetime. So in 1976, one of my mentors, who was a famous Scottish geriatrician named Professor Sir Ferguson Anderson, isn't that a wonderful <laughs> point? <laughs> yeah. Actually, about as Scottish as you get. About a neck exactly. Uh, published a textbook in which he said that the target blood pressure for an older person was 100 plus their age systolic <laughs> um, and anything under 110 diastolic and that it was unwise for physicians to try to intervene um, at any pressures that were that level or lower. And that was 1976. 
So while that may sound like ancient times to you guys, um, there are a lot of practicing docs out there who were trained around that time. And it took almost, well, we're still evolving in our understanding of what's the right approach to hypertension in older patients. And there have been several landmark studies that you would have all heard of. You know, the Framingham study was the first study to actually tie. Well, there was a VA study in men and then the Framingham study in all comers to show that there was a definite correlation between systolic hypertension and stroke and, and overall mortality in the older patients. And then there was a an interventional study called the SHEP study, the systolic hypertension study in the elderly that looked at intervention to show that if you brought pressures down from 170 or 180 into the 150 to 160 range, you could reduce the incidence of some of these complications. Then that's gone on. Then there was HIVET, which was a, a big sort of international trial that showed the same thing. And then in the 2000s, there have been several important studies, ACCORD, CIST-Euro, and then most recently, of course, SPRINT, um, which are all making contributions to our understanding of what's the best blood pressure to look for. Certainly, the JNC commissions and their reports over the years did a lot to advance guidelines and practice standards for all providers, including primary care providers. Um, but in the last decade or so, they've begun to splinter among different societies about what the targets should be. Mm-hmm. And that, that's where it gets confusing in primary right. care because do you follow that, the the, kid, the guidelines from the kidney folks, the diabetes folks, the, you know, the AHA? There's just the JNC8. There's, there's so many that they all have their own targets for their own patient populations. But I even want to go more simple than that. And I want to talk about how do you measure a blood pressure when you're adjusting this for your patients? Because I, it so sounds like the that, simplest question, but it's not. So I was going to ask your case presenter here, how was that blood pressure measured? Right. <laughs> Well, um, if my PCA at Cashlack is doing it correctly, I'd hope be hoping she'd be sitting the patient down for five minutes and then taking the blood pressure. But in reality, I don't know if that actually happened, if he just like ran into clinic and the blood pressure was taken. So I'd like to say I, I must give credit to Dr. Ray Townsend at the University of Pennsylvania. I, I spoke at a hypertension program last week. And Ray gave a whole presentation about these very basic measurement skills. Mm -hmm. So first of all, there are three basic kinds of blood pressure monitors, which I didn't realize myself. So there's the old (laughs) mercury style, which is hard to find anymore because of the health and safety issues with having liquid mercury. So most practices use aneroid uh, manometers, which are either mounted on the wall, or since I make house calls, I still have the old, you know, hand hand operated aneroid manometer. But mm-hmm. those are actually supposed to be calibrated on a regular basis, which <laughs> I'm surprised to say I don't believe that our practice does. The wall mounted units are supposed to be calibrated 
twice a year. The handhelds are supposed to be calibrated every quarter. We're certainly not keeping up to that standard. And then very news to me was that the third measure, measurement technique, which is getting more prevalent, is an oscilloscopic measurement, which is how most home blood pressure monitors work. And what they measure is actually the mean arterial pressure. And then they use an algorithm to calculate what the systolic and diastolic pressure are. Oh, wow. Um, which is why if you use a home blood pressure monitor, there's always a little pause between when the, you know, the little pulse beat stops and when the numbers appear. And that's because the machine is running the algorithm to generate the numbers. So those home monitors um, become inaccurate at the extremes of blood pressure because the algorithms, of course, are not balanced for the extremes. They're balanced for sort of the mean numbers. And, um, you all probably know, but it was news to me that Consumer Reports usually once a year comes out with um, a recommendation on the best home blood pressure monitors. Because um, I asked him what he recommended to his own patients who wanted to buy home machines. And he said he used the Consumer Report issue and <laughs> gave it to them and let them decide which ones. But he prefers the ones that go around the upper arm, not the wrist monitors. Right. Technique does not produce insignificant changes, though. Mm -hmm, so, right. for instance, if a patient's feet are not on the floor, that'll cause a two to three millimeter change. If their back is not supported, it can be as much as a five millimeter change. In our practice, in our office, mm -hmm. which is all old people, it is not at all unusual to see a 20 millimeter drop from their entry blood pressure taken by our medical assistant after they walk down a corridor till I come into the room 10 minutes later. In Sprint, the patients actually had to sit by themselves, so mm -hmm. they couldn't even be engaged in conversation. And the estimates that I've seen in the Sprint analysis, I don't know what you guys have seen, is that their readings were approximately 10 millimeters less than what the average office blood pressure right. reading would be. Yeah, and uh, that led to some interesting discussions. So I, I think my question has almost begotten more questions, but I, I think it would be helpful to say, for your expert opinion in your practice, how are you standardizing things to make sure that you're comparing apples to apples when you're adjusting blood pressure medications or, or, or interpreting blood pressure readings for your patients? So on an everyday basis, I'm doing my own readings on patients after they've been in sitting, waiting mm -hmm. in my office for five minutes. And I'm using those readings to make decisions unless I'm aware that there's significant hyper, white coat hypertension um, because their home readings are much lower than what I'm getting in the office, in which case I'll make my decisions based on their home readings. Okay. And do you, do you calibrate their home? Do any of you have a have a different strategy. No, I, I, mine would be pretty similar. I, I would always, before I, before I put any stock in their home readings, I always have them bring in their cuff and I would try to exactly. do it once every six months. And I would, I would test their home cuff versus what we're getting in clinic, either from a manual blood pressure or from the clinic, uh, the, the clinic automatic cuff. And then, and then right. I would have some sense whether it's accurate or not. So we do that too. We have them bring in their new machines, make sure they're getting a calibrated, a reasonably calibrated reading. 
But the incidence of white coat hypertension, as you all know, is 30 to 40% of all older patients. So this is, again, not an mm. insignificant problem. Yeah. One question that was asked at the conference was, when should you get ambulatory monitoring of blood yeah. pressure? That's which a question we have, Penn, too. Yeah, at Penn, it's uh, not widely available. Now, mm. maybe when you're smartwatch technology becomes more <laughs> right. available, well, that problem will be solved. But the, mm -hmm. the nephrologist hypertension experts who were there were saying that twice daily home readings done two to three days a week are almost as useful as the okay. ambulatory monitoring. What, yeah, I think what, even the UK guidelines advocate for ambulatory blood pressure monitoring to even make the diagnosis, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So it's, I feel like we have a little bit of ways to catch up. Well, I think even JNC8 talked about that, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it did. So being yeah. the gold standard for definition, but we just don't have the capability to do right. it yet. And I believe Medicare will only pay for it if you're trying to rule out white coat hypertension. Mm. Yes, that is that is that correct. Diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. So if if someone's going to check their blood pressure at home, just uh, make it as general as possible. When should they be checking it? After their medications, before before bed, right when they wake up, like what should we what should we be telling our patients in general? So I usually ask for different times of day on different days to try to get a spectrum of throughout the day what's happening to their pressure. But I would usually ask about two hours after their medications if that's possible. Okay. Obviously, if they're busy or out or involved with stuff, I'll settle for morning and evening and bedtime, but I, I prefer timed after medication. Mm -hmm. That's another thing to mention to your listeners, of course, which I'm sure you all know, is that a, a lot of my patients who are on diuretics won't take them the day they're coming to the office yeah. because they don't want to have an accident in transit. Mm -hmm. So again, what's the utility of that office reading <laughs> Right. given that they look at you very sweetly and say, well, I didn't take my medication yeah. today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you, I, I've heard that some, some patients, uh, or sorry, I've heard that some geriatricians will do standing blood pressures in the office on their patients because they want to know if they're having a significant drop in the, in the blood pressure when they stand. Is that something that you routinely do in practice or that you would recommend for the audience? I always do it with a new patient. I'll take mm -hmm. left and right arms and seated and standing. But I must say that I don't repeat that unless they're having symptoms of orthostasis. We do our orthostatic pressures somewhat different than the textbooks, although I saw an article a couple months ago that validated what we do, which is we'll have them take the seated pressure and I have them stand and I take the pressure as soon as I can get it with yeah. them standing. And then I take it again at at two minutes because I'm not really looking for critical volume depletion in a patient who's bleeding. I'm looking at fall risk right. and they're going to fall based on what that initial drop in blood pressure is. Mm. Yeah. And that, that study is, is, was in JAMA internal medicine earlier this year. It was by Jurashek and I'm sure I'm spelling that wrong, but I'll, I'll or saying that wrong, but I'll put it in the show notes for people. And that was, yeah, they, it was like middle-aged patients and they followed them for 23 years and that if they were orthostatic at, on that first reading at that initial visit there, then they had they were more likely to fall and uh, there was all sorts of things they were tracking. It's a very interesting article. 
And uh, it's good news too because it's easier to check an orthostatic blood pressure if if you're just if you're just getting it as soon as you can upon standing. So I like that one. Right. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. We we do want to talk about the ACP guidelines that that you chaired, and th- this was for patients over sixty years old. And you made three recommendations on blood pressure targets. So do you want me to talk about how we approach them, or? Yeah, um, I think so. So at the ACP, since we represent primary care doctors, the guidelines committee is about 15 physicians, about half of whom come from an evidence-based analysis research perspective, but the other half are practicing primary care doctors. And we're appointed every year with continuing appointments available. We spend some time thinking about what questions are troublesome for primary care doctors and whether we think there's a reasonable chance that there would be evidence to help make those decisions easier. If we do come to agreement on an interesting clinical question, then we look for a partner from an evidence-based center or an evidence-based Uh, organization to generate a report for us, an analysis of information around that clinical question. Sometimes those are done by the Agency for Healthcare uh, ARC, Mm A-H-R-Q. I'm sorry, I can't remember the acronym at the moment. Who can? (laughs) Um, Sometimes it's, we'll take advantage of a VA study. And in the last two years, the ACP has started its own evidence review division. So now we can do our evidence reviews in-house. So every society has different standards for how they generate questions and how they generate answers. The Many societies use what's called a consensus-based technique. So they'll gather a group of experts or contact groups of experts around clinical questions and report evidence where they can, but also comment on what the experts would recommend in that situation. And we call those consensus-based guidelines, or the guideline community does that. The ACP doesn't do that kind of guideline. So if we come in our discussions to a question that's not answered by our evidence report, we can't really speak to it. We don't make a recommendation in that area which has been frustrating for some of our readers and often is frustrating for the committee members that we can't go further to answer questions that we know our readers might have, but we just don't have data to support it and we don't comment when we don't have data. When we look at our evidence reports, we evaluate the studies that are reported and submitted and on two criteria. So one is the standard strength of evidence. And we have a sort of an 11 point checklist, you know, what was the design, a randomized control trial is a little stronger than an observational study, of course, for instance, we look at risk of bias, who funded the study, Um, we look at how diverse the population was, etc, etc, etc. And we then rate this studies as uh, rate the evidence for any recommendation as either being strong, moderate, or weak. And then we have a funny criteria we use called the 
the uh, strength of the recommendation, and we have either strong or weak recommendations. That decision is based purely on the relative merits of benefits and harms. So if an evidence report says that for a particular statement, the benefits clearly outweigh the harms or the harms clearly outweigh the benefits, we make a strong recommendation. If the harms and benefits are very finely balanced, we make a weak recommendation. Um, So you could theoretically have pretty good data on strength of evidence, but still come up with a weak recommendation because the benefits and the harms are so finely balanced. Wow, that's uh, I don't know that I understood. I probably should have understood. It seems so simple. I'm kind of embarrassed to say it, but <laughs> I don't I feel know. I dumb right now. I had no idea. That is <laughs> the most extraordinarily helpful thing I think I've heard since we started. Doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing like being on the committee for ten years. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How how does the process work with kind of these are pretty lofty goals you're working with kind of I'm assuming strong team members and kind of how are you guys working together what does a timeline look for guidelines to come out what yeah, does that's the work a great look like question. So from the time we propose a question it takes usually about 2 to 3 months to find an outside group that's willing to fund it or do the work unless we do it ourselves of course and then that moves more quickly it takes the evidence groups about a year to do the evidence review um, and then it takes us about 6 months after that to develop guideline recommendations and um wordsmith them until the committee comes to consensus around that recommendation. So up until very recently, we only published recommendations where we had unanimity on the committee. Um, In the last year, we've begun to be willing to publish recommendations and publish the vote if the committee is split um, on what the recommendation would be. As you can imagine, trying to get 15 academicians to... (laughs) Universal agreement on the wording of recommendations is never easy. Yeah, do you guys meet like on Skype or, or sorry, or, or no, no, we meet in Google person. Docs. What do you? Okay, nope, we, yeah, it's we called meet in, in person. person. They're not millennials, Shreya. <laughs> There's so much blood on the floor that we couldn't possibly. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's amazing. It's really, it's a wonderful. These are wonderful folks who are donating their time to the college to do this. Mm. And, can you kind of um, give advice to uh, trainees like me, uh, attendings, people that are reading these guidelines, that are using guidelines because they don't have time to maybe read these specific trials? How do you read these guidelines with critical with, with a critical eye? Well, I think that you want to choose your society. So certainly, the I think the guidelines that get the most publicity are the U.S. Services Preventive Task Force, of course. Um, our guidelines are pretty well regarded. The American Heart Association, ACC guideline, you know, the bigger societies. But you want to spend a little bit of time, once you pick the society that you're going to use, you do want to invest at 30 minutes or so to understand exactly how they do their guideline. Because um, I think that the, while the evidence-based guidelines may be a little more limited in what they say, I think they stand the test of time better. 
Then the the other thing is I I would encourage people to look at a neutral body recommendation mm-hmm. and a specialty society recommendation. Um, the specialty society recs are usually consensus based, so they'll cover a broader range of issues, but they can be a little bit biased by how the society views a problem or put more charitably, perhaps the kinds of patients that get referred to and are willing to see specialists are not the same patients that we see as primary care doctors sometimes. Hmm. That's, I think that's a helpful approach. And I I do want to go back to the case here. And we, so we had this patient who uh, we're seeing on on hydrochlorothiazide, blood pressure is 152 over 86. This was a 70-year-old man. Not much other comorbidities, just uh, enlarged prostate and osteoarthritis. And blood pressure, so we're saying blood pressure is not controlled on monotherapy with HCTZ. What what would be your oh, I think he's on. I think he's on another agent too. He's on amlodipine, right? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, and amlodipine. I'm sorry. So one additional question the ACP would ask such a patient is what he wants, how interested he is in his blood pressure control. Um, I think once you get beyond two medications, that becomes a very important factor in what's going to happen next because some of my patients are willing to push harder than that and some are not, Uh, whether that's due to comorbidities or cost or their fears of medications or whatever. So um, especially in people over 60, you can have such a wide range in functional status at any age. You know, I have 80-year-olds who are still working, playing tennis, driving, who are highly insulted if I suggest that their treatment goals for one problem or another may not be necessary anymore. (laughs) Um, That's always a challenge to phrase those conversations. You know, if I have patients in their late 60s with multiple comorbidities who are absolutely not interested in an additional blood pressure medication. Let's say they're already on three medications for diabetes. They may be on two or three additional heart failure-related meds, a statin. So to the extent you can pick an antihypertensive that may have a dual therapeutic modality like an ACE. Um, but I, I find that some of them are not interested in pursuing tighter control. Paul, is that your? <laughs> yeah, sure. No, I just, I had a question. You sort of touched on this tangentially and maybe the guideline even addresses this a little bit obliquely too, but I know that there's some discussion about um, the role of frailty in d- deciding what your blood pressure target might be. So I know that we have a, a couple of guidelines addressing blood pressure goals in older patients, but how, how do you take sort of frailty and sarcopenia or community dwelling versus nursing home dwelling into account when choosing sort of a, a blood pressure goal for your patients? So I think that the way many guidelines are dealing with that nowadays is just to call it comorbidity instead of frailty, since the most frail patients are multimorbid patients. Sure. I mean, there are occasional frail patients who are not, not multimorbid, but most of them are. And the ACP guideline um, which I have to keep flogging or they, they won't let me come on <laughs> the program again. Um, I think it'll be okay. We feel there's very, very strong evidence, of course, that treating blood pressures that are above 150 over 90 to 150 or 90 or below 
are strongly beneficial in almost all patients. Um, so that's a uh, strong evidence base and a strong recommendation. We felt that the JNC8 arguments, um, even before SPRINT, were uh, who were advocating blood pressure targets of 140 over 90, um, appear to have some merit in patients who have who are looking at ter- secondary prevention who've already had a stroke. And because we did include SPRINT in the evidence review, we have a third recommendation that says after discussions with some patients who have hypertension without diabetes, you may even want to approach a target of 140 over 90. And that's a weak recommendation because we feel the studies were not are not in agreement. Accord does not has opposite results to Sprint, for instance. Right. So one other point I, I wanted to make. Um, which might be useful to the audience of listeners is how to present this data. I know we all struggle with this. If we say we have to have conversations with our patients, how, how do you present this data? I don't know how, how all of you feel, but I find absolute risk reduction or number needed to treat are much easier for patients to deal with than relative risk reduction. Mm. And when you think about sprint, I look back at this this afternoon so the difference between the intensive target group in SPRINT and the 140 over 90 group in SPRINT was about 80 all-cause mortality events in 9,000 patients. So sometimes we get so bound up in the numbers. You know, a lot of us are numbers people. We like to see numbers. We like to deal with numbers. But, you know, we can lose perspective on how how big a difference we're really talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I absolutely have patients, most of whom are engineers, I must say, (laughs) who, uh, whose life now revolves around, you know, if I eat this apricot, but it's what's going to happen to my blood pressure. (laughs) Not a good thing, of course. Um, But who are absolutely interested in control, who believe that, you know, even if the number needed to treat was 40, they would still, want to be people who were saved from a stroke event. So should they be offered tight control? Probably yes. And I do have a few patients with whom I'm working to try to get them to that target, but not very many in my practice, that's for sure. The other thing that I think we're kind of getting into this area, we're talking about intensive control of systolic blood pressure. There was there there have been some articles talking about you're sacrificing diastolic blood pressure when you do that. And diastolic blood pressures less than 70 have been correlated in observational studies with all sorts of things like increase all-cause mortality. Did you factor that into the guidelines at all? We really, the evidence review could find no studies that looked at diastolic variation alone. And our evidence review did not get into the drops in diastolic pressure and tight systolic pressure mm-hmm. control. So we did not comment on that. I think it's an interesting question that yeah. I think, you know, when you really get into these issues of tight control, because we can do it, should we do it? You know, I think that the court is still out on that. Yeah, I really like this question of like how low is too low and um right. you know, hopefully 
you, you know, maybe it's the answer could be, you know, doing orthostatic uh, blood pressures in, 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 in the clinic. And um, maybe there's some other ways that we could kind of target that for our individual patient. If you go from two meds to three, the patient was compliant on two and they're not compliant on three, then two meds with whatever you get to is probably better, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So... I also think that something that I was reading about this lower blood pressure thing, they, they, they people have talked about the J-shaped curve, like very low blood pressures tend yeah. to predict mortality, very high blood pressures tend to predict mortality. And I, I think the, the, the sickest patients tend to have the lowest blood pressure. So their diastolic, their, their, their diastolic blood pressure is going to be on the lower side. And, and I didn't, I just don't know what to do with that in practice. I mean, I, I would have a lot of these elderly folks where I'm choosing between letting their systolic blood pressure ride in the one sixties or trying to, uh, or, but their, but their diastolic's in the fifties or sixties already. So I know if I lower the systolic more, I'm going to sacrifice the diastolic and, and I don't know what to do with those patients. I don't know if anybody does, but how do you handle those, those cases? So again, this is, I'm not an expert. I don't know the evidence base on this, but I would not not push systolic control mm-hmm. at a price of diastolics less than 60 for sure, probably less than 70. I would back away. Yeah. But often those people are so sick that I'm not really going after tight control anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't get myself in that situation too often. Right. It's like, remember, remind, remind yourself, look at the big picture. This person's 85 years old. Their life expectancy is not 10 years. Like right. you, you, we might not be gaining much. You're going to, you're going to harm this person. So that's, that's a good point. Although a stroke is still a devastating event. That's for sure. Well, I think uh, guys, we, we should start to wrap up because we're kind of coming to time here. Does anyone have any last minute questions? So I, this is more out of curiosity and we, we don't, I don't even know if this has to be addressed on the show so much, but just the timing of the joint guideline that came out, was that, it felt like a response to Sprint. Was that the case? So we had started on our guideline and we're getting ready to publish and then Sprint came out. Oh, So we decided to hold ours and have the data group include Sprint in the database because we figured if we published it, you know, it would just be out of date <laughs> right. right away. So it would be better to hold off. Right. Now, I think the new, so the JNC commission is out of business. Um, you probably know Congress or they didn't get funding, so they're not in oh, the I didn't know that. I did not know that. Oh, but no. the American College of Cardiology, AHA, took over the JNC process, and they're coming out with JNC 9 next month. Um, so oh, that's going to be confusing. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I'm so excited. But I, I think it'll also be recommend tighter controls than we did. Yeah. The cardiology community, you know, tends to be a little more intervention oriented than we do. Right. right. Yeah. Conflict of interest isn't the right phrase, but it's the next door neighbor to whatever phrase I'm trying to think of. Like that just. Well, I, <laughs> again, I like to view these things nowadays as more referral biases. You know, yeah, that's that, a great way to look at it. You know, that people who take all the trouble to come and see them and followed their advice are already motivated, you know, compared to our practices where a big part of our job is trying to motivate our patients to seek care or accept care. Marianne, I wanted to ask you if you have a couple take-home points 
Shreya, did you want to ask something before? Sorry, I have, I have one last burning question. I like to end on an inspirational note as always. So um, if you could tell us, Marianne, um, how does one get involved with guidelines and what does it take to be someone that writes guidelines? Can you kind of give us some inspiration for... So uh, probably the easiest way is to become associated with one of your specialty societies um, and then to volunteer for that committee Mm-hmm. Um, many guideline committees are now beginning to think about including trainees as members of the committee in order to increase the exposure to that kind of activity. We're in the process of trying to figure out how to incorporate a resident into our guideline committee. It's just, you know, the average term on the guideline committee is three years. So it, no resident is going to be able to really do that. So we have to figure out a way to make it a useful experience. What about Shreya during her GIM fellowship next year? That, that sounds yeah, like a great idea. idea. I hope you're <laughs> I love it. You can. <laughs> yes, I am. Let the leadership know that you're interested in that. It's really, it's I love the networking going on here. <laughs> fascinating uh, experience for me uh, as a generalist and, I joined the committee partly to try to get more geriatrics topics represented in the guidelines, and I feel like I have been able to do that. Um, and I've learned a lot of medicine at the same time. So excellent, it's been great. And now, how about some take-home points for the audience? Just a couple on this topic that we've been talking about. So I would just say two. Is one is you really need to think about how you're measuring blood pressure in your office. Um, you know, are you letting patients settle down before they take their pressures? To what extent is white coat hypertension playing a role? You certainly don't want to get patients on two, three, even four medications for pressure you're seeing in the office that are not what they have at home. Um, and then secondly, I, I do believe, as our guidelines say, that the management of hypertension, especially once you get to two or more medications, has to be a player-coach relationship. You have to understand what the patients want. Once they're informed about, in general, what their risks are, we really have to listen to them about how these medications influence their quality of life and what they're willing to put up with and what they're not. Well said. Well said. We're huge fans of the shared decision-making approach. So thank you so much. Oh, pleasure. Just a suggestion for you to think about at some point in the future. One big problem with this hypertension targeting has been the move to performance measurement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yep. Have you already done a podcast on sort of how performance measures are determined or? Not, not specifically, although I, I would probably, yeah, I, I would, <laughs> you would, you would see a side of me that uh, you don't normally see. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge problem in yeah. epic. If we put in hypertension into our encounter diagnoses, yeah. it automatically populates goal yep. of 140 over 90. Well, that's, <laughs> yep. that's not, yeah. you know. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm the internal medicine uh, POC for PCMH operations in the and every single time I go to one of these meetings, I just kind of sit down and say, "I, you know, th- this is bad, me- bad medicine, bad medicine, bad medicine. Please stop." Yeah, and uh, I have to explain to them the data. And so, so we've just been in the process of rolling back trying to these performance measurements that that really aren't evidence based. Yeah. Well, even 
I mean, even there, where there's evidence, sometimes the performance measurement community moves much too quickly. Right, right. Yes. And we've seen that multiple times. Yeah. Well, anyway, that would be a difficult show, but an oh, interesting I'd love it. one. <laughs> be like Jerry Springer, curbsider style. <laughs> Stuart, right. Stuart. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. It's past my bedtime. so uh-huh. Yeah, thank you so thanks much so for much. staying up Great. with us. Thank you. Pleasure. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was a great talk with Dr. Forcia. I did want to just go through the three recommendations that they had, which were, so recommendation number one, and these are the ACP guidelines for the the treatment of hypertension and and they're talking about targets. So the recommendation number one was goal less than 150, uh, systolic blood pressure less than 150. And because that's been shown to decrease mortality, stroke and cardiovascular events. And that was a Strong recommendation with high quality evidence backing mm-hmm. it up. I was going to say that, and the second one is that physicians, clinicians should consider initiating or intensifying pharmacologic treatment if uh, in your patient's 60 years of, or older with a history of stroke or, or TIA to achieve a blood pressure target of less than 140 to reduce the risk for a recurrent stroke. And this is also um, graded, but it's graded on a weak recommendation with moderate quality evidence. And that did not, that did not improve mortality to treat right. those patients. It just it just prevented recurrent stroke. Having that was, said that, morbidity from a stroke can be significant. Yes. Which which Marianne pointed out on the show as well. Absolutely. And then the the third goal is is the one that's, you know, kind of putting their hands up like less than one forty over ninety can be considered for patients with high cardiovascular risk. And I think that one is the one that she was talking about is in response to sprint. And the things that I think need to be pointed out there is like they, you should factor in things like uh, multimorbidity or comorbidities, uh, medication burden, risk for adverse events and cost. And I think that's like the shared decision-making stuff that she was talking about because right now we just don't know. I mean, sprint, like Paul, you were bringing this up. Sprint didn't include um, nursing home or you know people in skilled nursing facilities. So those those stricter targets are not for everyone. All right, Paul. I feel like uh, this is back to square one. Uh, we we this is an emergency recording session because <laughs> <laughs> we recorded. We recorded on the hypertension guidelines, the ACP guidelines. I took forever to edit them, so I haven't released them yet. And now the ACCAHA uh, has released their guidelines. So I feel like we need to have some sort of response for the audience. Uh, And unfortunately, Stuart and Shreya could not be here for this part of it, uh, even though they were in the first parts of this episode. Um, So, Paul... There's a new new blood pressure targets or new new definition of blood pressure is probably the more correct way to say it, right? Yeah, there's a new everything. Yeah, it's this was I if you recall one of my picks of the week, which I I said in joking before I had a chance to see it. But yeah, it's they've redefined blood pressure as an entity. They've redefined the treatment targets. They've kind of, they kind of went and changed everything on us, which was rude. I think. <laughs> what are your what are your sort of general thoughts about the guidelines? Uh, well, first, in case the audience hasn't read it, normal blood pressure is defined by these guidelines, the 2017 ACC AHA, as less than 120 over 80. Elevated blood pressure is between is greater than 120 up to 129, or a diastolic less than 80. 
And stage one hypertension is greater than or equal to 130 up to 139 or a diastolic between 80 and 89. And stage two hypertension is greater than or equal to 140 over greater than or equal to 90. And these are, you know, the, so basically putting the definition of stage one hypertension at a blood pressure greater than 130 over 80, which is the controversial point. Yeah, it's back, baby. Pre-hypertension is back, <laughs> except we're not we're not calling it that anymore. We're and calling so, yeah, it, that's yeah the elevated blood pressure, which is I think the area of controversy now. Where when you'll hear your colleagues saying the people who have read the news articles about it will say, "Well, now everyone has high blood pressure," and uh, that's I think the thing that has everyone most excited about these new guidelines. Yeah. So let's just uh, we're not going to go through you know ad nauseum that would take a full episode and we're looking for the right expert to do that with which will probably be sometime in quarter 1 here but i think that they when they talk about diagnosing this paul they want you to have at least two readings they should be at least 1 minute apart and they should be and and uh, sorry uh, at least two readings on at least two occasions and and your two readings at any given time need to be at least a minute apart paul what what are your thoughts on this really emphasizes how to measure a blood pressure. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, it's, I actually, I really like this part of the guidelines. I know it seems silly, but they really spend a lot of time um, in terms of defining what things, what behavior should be avoided and how to actually measure properly in the office. So things like having the patient sit quietly for five minutes and recording with both their feet on the floor and they should not talk and they should specifically not be using their cell phone. And during the initial meeting with the patient, you actually do both arms, then choose the arm that has the higher blood pressure. I mean, they're very, very granular and very, very explicit about how to take a blood pressure properly. And I, I, I can hear Stewart's head exploding um, in Texas because I, I have a feeling this is going to be one of the sticking points because probably I think one of the counter arguments, not that I think it's valid, um, is that no one actually measures the blood pressure that way. And this is not how it's going to be practically done in clinics. And I, I don't, I, I heard actually the lead author, uh, Dr. Welton talk about this on the JAMA clinical review podcast, where he made the very, I think a fair point where is if this was air traffic controllers and they were like, well, it's just hard to do it that way. No one would be okay with that. <laughs> so, and I, you were making decisions that can potentially alter patients lives. So I think similarly, we should probably make an effort to take blood pressure readings properly. And I, I like that this was emphasized in this guideline. What's your take? Well, there was a, just last night, there was an uh, American College of Cardiology Journal Club, and I was kind of looking through that. It was on Twitter, and th the experts there were pointing out, uh, one of the experts there was pointing out that the physician measuring the blood pressure themselves with a manual cuff is actually, you know, not recommended. And for, he said, for greater than 10 years now, we've known that's not the best way to get the blood pressure. So there's, the way you get blood pressure, there's, there's, a couple different choices now that are that are sort of being pushed to the forefront. So there's the automated oscillometric blood pressure readings, which is basically the automatic blood pressure cuff that you can do the way they did in Sprint, where it was in the office, they had an arm cuff, it blew up three times, it gave you the average of three after the patient had been sitting for five minutes at rest. Then you can do home blood pressure monitoring. Again, they're recommending home cuffs 
Or you can do ambulatory blood pressure monitoring where the patient wears a cuff for 24 hours. And all of those are going to give you slightly different values, but they, they all have their place, I think, in trying to figure out, does this person have hypertension or not? And th- it's going to be different. Uh, the blood pressures are going to be different there than when you check them uh, if you're the physician standing in front of the patient in your white coat checking checking the blood pressure. And you might also have biases that cause you to change the numbers slightly, you know, so I think, <laughs> I, I, I just think that, uh, that, that's something that now to me, those are the three ways that I think if I have the choice to measure blood pressure myself manually or with an automated cuff in clinic with no healthcare provider present or home monitoring or ambulatory monitoring, I'm going to choose one of those three to make my decisions. Yeah, it's tricky. I, it's, I, I read that thread and I, it seems like the problem that they brought up is that blood pressure seems to be higher when the physician is measuring it, which has almost never been the case in my own personal practice. You know, usually if I'm rechecking a blood pressure, I'm like, well, that's weird. That seems too high. And then when I recheck and maybe this is confirmation bias, it is lower. And maybe it's my soothing baritone or my, my pleasant <laughs> manner. Or maybe it's because they've actually been sitting for five minutes this time and not just hustled into a waiting room with a blood pressure cuff slapped on over their coat. So it's I'm not I'm not 100% on board necessarily with, with the argument that physicians should not be taking blood pressure. I would I, th- I think ambulatory blood pressure monitoring is probably the best, but we talked about this in previous episodes. It's almost impossible to get ordered. Yeah. And then home blood pressure monitoring. Another thing I like about these guidelines is they emphasize that you have to train the patients how to do it properly, right. which is something else where I think we fall down. So I think it really goes back to fundamentals and making sure that you're you're taking the blood pressure properly, whatever the context is. And I, I think it's a good and correct point to emphasize because we're basing treatment decisions on it. I did go a little bit down the rabbit hole on this year. And heart.org has some tips for choosing a blood pressure monitor. They they didn't have a list on a blood pressure monitor there, but they're basically the heart.org recommends that there's a couple, there's three different societies that they recommend that at least one of those has approved the blood pressure monitor that you're using. But I'll link to this in the show notes. The British and Irish Hypertension Society are one of the societies mentioned on heart.org, and they actually have a list of blood pressure monitors for home use, and you can look in there and see which monitors are approved, and and really your patient should be choosing from that list. The consumer reports list that Dr. Forcia mentioned is uh, only available if you're a subscriber to that, which I'm not sure how many of our listeners are subscribing to consumer <laughs> to consumer reports uh, in the podcast going audience. I'm not sure how popular that is, but probably only like 87, 88 percent. I would guess. <laughs> so once once your patient has their home blood pressure monitor, I I mentioned this before, but basically have them take two readings in the morning, preferably preferably before they take any meds, and then two two readings in the evening, usually sometime before dinner. Uh, that's that's what's recommended in the guidelines. There's still not a lot of hard data on, you know, how, on why it needs to be done that way and how well that works. But in general, I think home blood pressure monitoring is, is kind of more, be, is being more widely accepted now. So I think it is something valid that you can use, but I would definitely make sure the patient has a validated cuff and that they bring it in and you're, you're checking that it's calibrated uh, at least twice a year, I think would be the, uh, if you're, if you're basing hard treatment decisions on it. Absolutely. They, I noticed they, uh, they, for choice of agent here, they didn't change much from JNC8, where they recommended a, thi- uh, a thiazide diuretic, 
a, a calcium channel blocker and Acer and Arb as first line. But they did, Paul, I noticed our, our friend Chlorthaladone was uh, highly high up there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, that was like a separate recommendation point, yeah, I think, that Chlorthaladone is to be favored over HCTZ, which I yeah. thought was and they said for Chlorthaladone. It was, quote, because of its long half-life and proven decrease in cardiovascular disease risk. And uh, so I guess uh, our experts have been right in using more Chlorthaladone, so... While you're on the subject of treatment, I, I, I just want to ask, so what, I mean, I, I think that's the other controversial point. And I think that I, the only criticism I might have is that this gets a little bit cumbersome in terms of deciding when to treat and sort of what you're treating with. Like, what, what was your take on sort yeah. of the using of the pooled cohort calculator to decide when to actually treat this sort of stage one and then the, the use of fixed dose antihypertensives for stage two? I mean, is, where I did, how did you feel about the actual treatment recommendations? Yeah. I mean, I think this is going to be a, I think this is going to be a tough topic. It, it adds a layer of complexity to this, but essentially they're saying for patients high risk, known cardiovascular disease or ASCVD risk greater than 10%, they they want you to treat to a goal of less than 130 over 80. And of course that was based on the sprint data, uh, largely based on the sprint data. And then for patients who don't have known cardiovascular disease or don't have a uh, risk higher than 10% on that calculator, then, uh, yeah, you might can still consider it. It gets a 2B recommendation. You, you might still consider treating to less than 130 over 80, but, you know, they, it kind of throws its arms up. I think that it's going to be case by case. I mean, it's going to be, you're going to, you're going to have to tell the patient that these are what the recommendations are, less than 130 over 80. If the patient's already on two, uh, two agents, and they're really like, you know, they've changed their lifestyle and they're 135 over 82. I, I don't know that I'm going to add a third agent. Um, you know, it's going to be a shared decision. Like, do you want to go to a third agent? It just depends on their risk and, and their willingness to take three blood pressure medications or their ability to afford and adhere to three blood pressure medications. So I think there's all sorts of really complex things like that, uh, practical things that get in the way. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I will say one of the things I really liked about the guidelines, the all 190 pages of them, is they really go down to a level of detail. I, you know, I think fundamentally the takeaway point is use the agents that make the most sense for the patient that's in front of you. So I, I think if you have some familiarity with what's indicated for comorbidities, you're going to be in okay shape. So if you have a diabetic with albuminuria, the use of the herb is no-brainer. If you have a heart failure patient, this is when you bust out the beta blocker, though. You know, so it's they have there's lots and lots of sort of subheadings and subsections about what agents to choose and what particular disease states that are present. But I think it's stuff that you kind of know already. So even though the guidelines seem very cumbersome and, and extraordinarily long, it's just so long, Wado. I know. Um, I think a lot of it is just information that you kind of know already. And if you just go back to really your goal is almost 130 over 80 for virtually everyone that you're treating for hypertension and just pick the blood pressure medications that makes sense for their comorbidities. I think you're going to be largely in okay shape. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a nice way to kind of boil it down for people. It's, it's interesting how I, I think the reason that they set the goals so low 
is because they really are pushing non-pharmacologic treatment, which can have a pretty big effect if patients are doing, because all these things are, are additive and they all chip away at the blood pressure a little bit. So if someone has a terrible lifestyle and now suddenly they're exercising and they're eating the right things, uh, they're not drinking as much, their their pressure can really come down a lot and, and you, can, you can avoid agents. So I think they're stressing this non-pharmacologic management and they want, I think, more people to get treated early because if you look at there's there's this great article from the lancet and i believe it was from 2002 and it basically just shows it has these graphs paul i put it in the show notes for you i don't know if you have them in front of you here but it 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 shows that like for every 10 points increase in you know systolic or diastolic blood pressure the the stro- uh, stroke mortality just goes up and up and up um for blood pressure and, you know, at any given age, you know, the higher your pressure, the higher your risk. And um, at younger ages, um, you know, the, that, the slope of that line is much higher. At, at, higher, at, at older ages, you know, your risk is, is pretty high regardless of the, of the blood pressure. <laughs> right. but, but at younger ages... <laughs> that ship is sailed, my friend. Yeah. But at younger ages, you know, uh, less than 80, basically, the slope is, is rather steep as you go from a blood pressure of 120 up to 180. Um, and in, in your risk for stroke. So, I, I mean, this is this is what these kind of hard endpoints are what we're trying to prevent with this. Yeah, and you see the same thing in diabetes, too, with clinical inertia, where you just sort of, you don't want to pull the trigger on sort of the, the quote, harder agency. So you don't want to start the insulin, and you just kind of wait and keep kicking the can down the road. Well, they're kind of close, and they're almost there. And the longer you're stalling at the earlier the age, um, the more you're setting some up for a bad outcome later on. So it's, it's I, I kind of appreciate what they're going for here. Yeah, and I think that that really accounts. It's interesting that the ACP guidelines, which we reviewed with Dr. Forcia, came out in 2017. They held production of those guidelines to allow for sprint. And that's where they put in the third recommendation that says uh, systolic blood pressure target less than 140 for patients who you think are at high cardiovascular risk. Uh, but then these ACC AHA guidelines came out and she predicted that they would have stricter goals and they do. They're, they're basically predicting less than 130 over 80 for everybody. And, um, I think the ACP guidelines, which as she told us, they're more, they're evidence-based. They're not consensus-based. They, they really felt that the strongest data, and they said this is strong. It's a strong recommendations, high quality evidence, get the blood pressure less than 150, uh, systolic blood pressure less than 150 for patients over 60 with hypertension. And that, that was their, you know, highest quality recommendation. So I think we have to kind of wait and let this get fought out a little bit by people that are smarter than us on the topic of blood pressure, Paul, before we just go pushing everybody below 130 over 80. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and push. I'm only (laughs) half kidding. You know, it's, I, I'm starting to realize about myself, as much as I pride myself on being an individualist, I, I'm, I seem to be the first to be drinking the Kool-Aid a lot of the time. Um, but I, I just I, I feel the same sentiment around these guidelines that I felt around the 2013 ACC AHA guidelines, where everyone thought they were just, oh, it was too aggressive, and it was. Everybody gave me all the statin now. I remember, and literally, I mean, our residents are not following them to the letter. Like, it's just yeah. all the concerns have kind of gone away. If anything, we're being more aggressive than what they initially recommended. And I, I think it's Probably my prediction is this is going to shake out much the same way. So there'll probably be some initial resistance. There'll be a lot of uh, rending of clothes and gnashing of teeth and pulling your hair out. And eventually this is going to be the standard that most people are going to end up following. Um, 
So it's, I'll probably just be an early adapter just so I can seem smart later on is, is really my goal. But it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's a little bit scary. It's nerve wracking to be, you know, starting two agents and patients with blood pressure, say 145 systolic and, you know, being very aggressive in your older patients, even though there is a caveat that if they're institutionalized or have a lot of comorbidities, you don't have to be quite so aggressive. It's, it's still a little bit nerve wracking, but I think it's going to end up being the standard um, just because I, I think it is overall well-written and they just, they have so much detail and actually Sorry to be talking so much. The other thing I really like about the guidelines is their structure. They actually, they use the term modular knowledge chunks, which I just find <laughs> so colloquial and such fancy pants guidelines that I kind of love that. But it, just the way they outline the recommendation, they have a nice graph that sums it up, and then they have the evidence and the yeah. citations following each point. I think it's really nicely put together. Agree or don't, I think it's at least set up in a way that you can analyze it fairly easily. It is, and it's been, this is the third guideline we've highlighted on the show. We did the syncope guidelines and the CHF guidelines, and they were similar format where they're really, you can really jump around. I mean, they're not, I I don't think they're necessarily meant to be read straight through. Um, You certainly should browse, at least skim them. Uh, And there's there's several, I can link to, uh, there's a Jack Jack article, which is kind of a clinical summary. It's like 21 bullet points. It does a wonderful job of, of kind of summarizing everything. And, uh, but, but yeah, the guidelines, I think the ACCHA have a great format. I would agree with you there. Well, I think that, uh, we've, we've probably talked enough on this. I think enough, at least to, uh, tease people. We'll, we'll try to get an expert on, on hypertension, maybe even someone involved with writing these guidelines on a future show this year. And, uh, especially after there's been some more time for this to go through the peer review process, which is, I mean, I was almost overwhelmed by editorials when I was trying to prepare just for this little segment we're doing it's here. It's stunning. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm super excited. Like, you know, even some of the, the minor details, like I just, I'm excited about, like the, the idea of potassium supplementation, which has always been out there, but in practicality, I don't know how to do it. So, like, I would just love to have someone who was involved in the guidelines be like, tell me, who am I supplementing with potassium? <laughs> how am I doing that? Like, is it just bananas? Like, what is, what am I, what am I doing? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's fascinating. I'm looking forward to see how things shake out and how people get very excited about them. And, I'm sure Stuart's having spontaneous nosebleeds as he listens to this right now. <laughs> that was that was one of our primary goals for recording <laughs> recording without him. But now he he and Shreya will magically rejoin us as we go to the outro. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing mm. you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And please sign up for our weekly mailing list where you'll receive wonderfully done copies of our show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. Trey is doing these ones. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) please send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. We're doing a lot there these days, aren't we, on Twitter, Stuart, and Paul, well, and Trea. <laughs> All I don't guys. know. You guys tweet a lot. I've never looked. Until- <laughs> Paul just tweets randomness. It's amazing. Did you guys Did you guys see the journal of uh, graduate medical education publication that uh, went through how people are using their Twitter um, to gain tenure? What? No. That's not cool. No, I mean, well... If you build a network, like you guys say, with like 
Joel Toff and whatnot, you can you can really use that to kind of sell yourself and bring value to an institution. But I think it's it's an ama- Twitter. If you guys are not on it, just a huge plug. It's a, it's a great world of medical education, and I didn't know about it until I think I just joined April uh, this year, and it's been a game changer for me in terms of my learning. You should join just for the snarky tweets from Paul. They're amazing. I, and I cannot, I, I say this in all seriousness, and I cannot stress this enough. I want no physicians following me on Twitter. So, <laughs> or, or really any kind of medical provider. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be elitist. Yeah, no, NPs, pharmacists, no one, please. <laughs> we, we, could cut, we could cut that out, Paul, no problem. I'll cut out, uh, yeah, don't fo- please don't follow Paul on Twitter, but please follow, follow Stuart and Trey on Twitter. And, uh, and me and the Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. And I'm Dr. Shreya Trevetti. Good night. And I remain Paul Nelson Williams. Good night. Oh, hello, Paul. And do you think I'm pronouncing the name right, Forcia? Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs> best, best response ever. Love it. Should have been recording that. I, 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 I am recording that, Paul. He records, <laughs> he records his entire life now.